Welcome back to No Sleep Till Gondara. I'm your host, Mike. This is a podcast where I'm reading through Journey to the West and then coming here to talk about it. Last time, I said that I was going to cover the preface to the first edition and that it's going to set up the historical context for the novel. And I misunderstood. I was conflating the preface and the official introduction. So there are two part those are each separate things that I'm going to talk about here. The preface to the first edition which is from 1983 and then the official introduction. The other thing that I didn't know is that the official introduction I'm saying official because I called the first episode of the podcast the introduction so just clarifying what I'm talking about. So the official introduction to the book is 96 pages long. So it's way more than I was anticipating. And also it's full of words from other languages that I don't know and plenty of rabbit holes about religion that I had to look up. So please bear with me as I go through that. Again, I'm doing my best to pronounce these things. I'm going to fuck it up. And also, I'm trying to research these things here in the U.S., so I'm sure that the search results are full of propaganda and uh, inaccurate. So feel free to send me corrections. You can do that at nosleepjourney at gmail.com. My approach is going to be to break up the introduction into chunks because... No, I did not read through all 96 pages <laughs> before coming to record this podcast. I got maybe about five or six pages in before I had way too many notes already. So, yeah. Let's jump right in. These are just my notes and bullet points at a high level of what I found interesting. 
starting with the preface to the first edition from 1983, written by the editor and translator, Anthony C.U. The novel, Journey to the West, its first publication is from the late 16th century, a.k.a. the 1500s. In the preface here, Anthony talks more in depth about the previously mentioned translations and calls out that the earliest English translations were from 1913 and then the next one was from 1930. He specifies that the Arthur Whaley version, which was called Monkey Folk Novel of China, was from 1943. And that included less than a third of the original. The biggest crime (laughs) of that translation, according to Anthony, is the choice to omit all of the poetry. And that is the reason Anthony feels that the novel has stood the test of time. He posits that the, quote, narrative vigor and descriptive power of the poem's language is what has attracted generations of Chinese readers. So making these poems available in English is what was his basic motivation for doing this translation. He also acknowledges that he's not doing this translation in a vacuum. Uh, He mentions that there's some contemporary scholarship that he's relying on for for his translation. And the introduction which we'll talk about next but he adds that what he feels he's bringing to the table is an effort to make sure that not just the satire and comedy is represented but also what he describes as quote serious allegory derived from chinese religious syncretism and of course i had to look up what religious syncretism means and that is the fusion of diverse religious beliefs and practices. And that sort of comes up again in the introduction. So we'll come back to that idea, I think. The rest of the preface to the first edition is a lot of specific thanks to all the people who helped him via encouragement, support, research, friendship, criticism, suggestions, and thanking his family for understanding him being unavailable during long stretches of time where he was devoted to the work. So I'm not going to go through all those, obviously, but I like calling attention to the actual work and effort and network of people it takes to complete a work like this. Surprise, I'm interested in the material needs of who to thunk it. Up next is a list of abbreviations which I'll be skipping. Then we get to the official introduction. We start out with talking about the novel, The Journey to the West, which in Chinese is Shi Yo Ji, and it's from the late Ming period. It is loosely based on the pilgrimage of Shanzong, who lived from around 596 
to 664. He was a monk who went from China to India in quest of Buddhist scriptures. He was not the first, though. There were at least 54 people before him, starting with Zhu Shijing in 260. And not all of these pilgrims completed their journey. After Shanzong, another roughly 50 pilgrims made the journey, the last of which was the monk Wukong, who stayed in India for 40 years and returned in the year 789. Therefore, Shanzong's journey was part of a wider movement of seeking Dharma in the West. Now, I tried to look up what Dharma means, and there's a million answers. According to Wikipedia, which again, grain of salt, but this says that in Buddhism, Dharma means cosmic law and order, and that Dharma incorporates the teachings and doctrines of the founder of Buddhism, the Buddha. That kind of makes more sense to me in the context that Anthony's talking about it. So I'm going to go with that for now. And uh, that movement spanned nearly five centuries. The novel does not attempt to depict Shanzong's literal achievements or personality, but he was one of the best known and most revered Buddhist monks. He was born probably in the year 596, and his family was prominent officials. His older brother was a Buddhist monk, and Shanzong joined the monastic community at age 13. The time during which Shanzong was growing up was during the Sui dynasty, which was from 581 to 618. And Anthony says that although it only lasted for 40 years, it, it represented a critical period in Chinese history. The founding Sui emperor actively sought the support of Confucianism, Taoism, and Buddhism to consolidate his empire, which was reversing persecutory policies of his predecessors. The emperor was Buddhist, and his patronage allowed the Buddhist community to grow. One of the things he did was built stupas, which I had to look up. Apparently these are burial mounds that are faced with stone. They were either burial mounds or they held relics. This was in emulation of the Indian monarch Ahsoka, who reigned from 268 to 232. Again, according to Wikipedia, is credited with playing an important role in the spread of Buddhism across ancient Asia. Going back to the sweet emperor who was emulating the Indian monarch Ahsoka, the sweet emperor established a program to propagate Buddhism. And his credit of contributing to Buddhism's growth during this time and place is measured by a vast increase in converts, clerics, and temples. So, 
during this time is when Xuanzang is studying. And he is studying the Nirvana Sutra and the Mahayana Samparigraha Sastra. These are important because, at least as they were translated and available at the time, they offered a contradicting view on the concepts of enlightenment and salvation. The Buddhists up to this time were taught that there is no self in Nirvana. Then the Nirvana Sutra comes along and says that the Buddha possesses an immortal self and that the final state of Nirvana is one of bliss and purity enjoyed by the immortal self. Samsara is thus a pilgrimage leading to the final goal of union with the Buddha, and this salvation is guaranteed by the fact that all living beings possess the Buddha nature. All living beings, from the beginning of life, participated in the Buddha's eternal existence, and thereby dignity is granted to them as children of the Buddha. On the other hand, the Sastra had what is described as a more, quote, elitist view of salvation. But both of these texts are from the same school, which is called Yogacara, which, according to Wikipedia, literally means yoga practice and is a tradition of Buddhist philosophy and psychology emphasizing the study of cognition perception, and consciousness through the interior lens of meditative and yogic practices. Xuanzang questioned the contradiction, could all men or only part of humanity attain Buddhahood? He was convinced that unless the original Yogacarya Bhumi Sastra, which was the foundational text of his school of Buddhism, became available to him, the other texts that they had couldn't be properly understood. And this was the primary question that drove him to make his famous pilgrimage to India. And I'm going to stop there for today. That is plenty for me to chew on for now. I'm going to keep making my way through the rest of the introduction over time. I'll do it in digestible segments. Hopefully I'll be able to get a little further next time. I'm not committing to any particular length right now, but we'll see what's feasible going forward. For what I got through so far, I think it's really cool to understand now the historical reason for the journey. That's something I never heard or knew before, so that is really interesting to me, and I love getting extra context about what was going on in the rest of the world during this time. One thing that Anthony talked about when he was discussing the patronage of the Sui Emperor, it, he compared it to... Constantine and Christianity and uh, that was a little uncomfortable for me so I didn't put it primarily in the in the notes but uh, as I'm kind of talking through this here I thought it might be worth mentioning that um, there's probably going to be another aspect of this which is seeing what Anthony 
thinks is important and it in his descriptions and comparisons maybe seeing a little bit of his worldview come through and uh there was some other stuff about how the sweet emperor was consolidating power and expanding his influence and there was a a little bit of i i felt a little bit of imperialism aggrandizement sneaking in there uh of course anthony didn't put it that way but and and of course i don't i'm not uh, by any means you know i basically know nothing about china so i i'm unqualified to really comment on it but it's just a little weird the way he phrased some of that empire building description uh so i thought it was worth calling out there Otherwise, I'm excited to continue, and I hope you found it interesting. If you have any corrections or questions or anything that you thought that I should talk about, you can email me at nosleepjourney at gmail.com. I'm your host, Mike, and until next time, no sleep till Gondara. Alone.